Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's April 2022. The recent disclosure of text messages between Clarence Thomas's wife, Jenny Thomas, and the White House Chief of Staff during the events of January 6th has led to great scrutiny of the Supreme Court's process regarding recusals of justices in situations where they or a family member may have an interest. In today's episode, I examined what those standards are and how they fit in with the broader political context surrounding the Supreme Court today in light of the January 6th inquiry going on and upcoming cases on the court's docket. There is one federal statute that requires any federal judge in the federal system to disqualify themselves in situations involving a number of different financial conflicts, and then in any situation where, and this is the language of the statute, their impartiality might reasonably be questioned. The cases that have taken a look at this say it is an objective standard. It's not whether the judge is actually biased one way or another, but whether something has happened to create an appearance of partiality uh, on the part of the judge in favor of one side or the other. And that's it as far as the Supreme Court goes. There are other codes of conduct that apply to other federal judges in the federal system, but that one statute is the only one that applies to Supreme Court justices. And if you compare that statute to a story... It's a story with a beginning, but not a middle or an end, because it doesn't say how it's supposed to be enforced. Other federal courts have developed different procedures for dealing with motions to recuse or motions for disqualification, both the district courts and the circuit courts. But in the U.S. Supreme Court, it's adopted a practice of deferring decisions about recusal to the individual justice in question and then not reviewing those decisions by the full court or other members of the court. How did we get here? Why is the Supreme Court unique among the federal courts in having only this one law apply to it without any particular enforcement mechanism? Chief Justice Roberts has written about this issue. He makes a yearly statement to Congress about the state of the federal judiciary. In 2011, he addressed the issue of regulation of the Supreme Court. He made a couple of observations. First, he pointed out that unique among the federal courts, the Supreme Court doesn't have a bench to draw from. In other words, there's no backup players. On the district bench, on the circuit bench, generally you have available other members of that court. If the full court is busy with other things, you can usually find senior judges, the trial bench, you might be able to find a magistrate judge. Occasionally there are visiting judges, and the circuit judges have the ability to designate district court judges to sit by designation. So it may be hard in an individual case, but you're going to find somebody. The Supreme Court, however, only has nine members, and if someone is recused, it takes you to eight, and that automatically changes the rules of the games. It introduces the possibility of a tie, and as we saw when after Justice Scalia passed away, and several important matters were still pending before the court, A 4-4 tie produces an affirmance, but without a precedential Supreme Court opinion. Losing one justice has a material impact on the way the court operates in a way that it just doesn't on other courts. Second, he pointed out that recusal decisions are generally reviewable by the next higher level of the court system. We have a preference for having it work that way instead of putting other peers of a particular judge in the awkward position of having to rule on that. District judge's decision about whether or not to step away from a matter will be reviewed by the circuit court, a circuit judge's decision by the Supreme Court, but at the Supreme Court that doesn't really work. It's the Supreme Court, and there's just no place for it to go. As a result of these unique properties, the 
small and finite number of justices on the court and the, the inability to have really meaningful appellate review of people who are at the same level as you, the Chief Justice said it's important to maintain a less formal system that allows individual justices to review the applicable case and applicable standards and make their own personal decisions about these matters. Yes, questions come up about the impartiality of justices from time to time, but on the whole, the court's legitimacy has not really been shaken by any particular justice's decision about whether or not to step away from a matter, even Justice Scalia's decision to remain on the case after the infamous duck hunt with Dick Cheney. But two aspects of our current political situation suggest the court may now be facing a little bit different situation. In a recent interview with the Lincoln Project, I drew an analogy to a bowl of soup being cooked on a stove and imagine that beneath the bowl of soup there are two burners, both of which apply heat to that and could potentially cause the soup to boil over if there's too much heat. In the current political situation, there are two drivers, two forces acting on the court that can be analogized to those two burners. The first is the ongoing investigation of the events of January 6, 2021. The entire situation with Jenny Thomas's text came to light as a result of discovery processes, subpoenas, that committee is engaging in as it goes about doing its work. Justice Thomas has been wisely criticized for participating in a vote by the Supreme Court about the committee's subpoena power when, as we now know in hindsight, his wife's texts were a part of the information that was going to be affected by that ruling. The question from here is, what's going to happen? We obviously have some texts that involve Jenny Thomas. They obviously involve communication with the highest levels of the executive branch during January 6th. What is the committee going to do with that? Are they going to press forward for more information about those particular communications? Are they going to seek to interview Ms. Thomas? And if they do do so, will litigation about that proceed to the Supreme Court? And then in some ways, the work of the committee itself is just the tip of the spear. There are potential criminal investigations in the background, and there is ongoing private civil litigation for damages about people injured in the course of January 6th. Perhaps one of them will try to subpoena these records or depose Mrs. Thomas, and thus again bring a dispute into the court system that could potentially find its way to the Supreme Court. To return to the burner analogy for a moment, it could be that the Ginny Thomas texts are just one of those things that burn brightly for a couple of weeks then fade away, that the committee's investigation turns to other issues, it turns out that they're not that significant in the big scheme of things, and people simply move on down the road. Or it could be that they continue to be a source of factual discovery by the work of the committee, discovery in the course of related civil litigation, and as a result of that, a continued source of appeals, legal processes, and the need for intervention and decision-making by the Supreme Court over and over again. We just don't know, but we do know that the existence of the January 6th committee, the fact that this is on their radar and that other people likely have it on their radar as well, creates a source of pressure on the Supreme Court that is unusual. It's different than Dick Cheney's duck hunt with Antonin Scalia that was kind of a one-off for that case. This is something that involved a past dispute before the Supreme Court where Justice Thomas participated in a decision about the scope of the January 6th committee's subpoena power and is likely to continue into the future as that committee and other related parts of the judicial system engage with factual discovery about what happened on January 6th. Meanwhile, the second burner. It's on low heat right now, but it has the potential to become very, very hot. Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey are opinions that a lot of people care a great deal about. 
We saw this last fall when the novel anti-abortion law that we have in Texas, SBA, that allows private lawsuits for civil damages against those who aid or abet someone obtaining an abortion, was handled by the Supreme Court in some very expedited emergency motion practice right after the law began to take effect. And after those rulings were made, the percentage of the population holding a favorable opinion of it notably fell, and it has continued to drift downward since then. If it were simply that one case, that would simply be something in the past and we go on and look to the future to other cases. But the Supreme Court also has on its docket the Dobbs case that came from Mississippi and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit that puts squarely at issue whether Roe and Casey continue to be binding precedents. It's now early April. The Supreme Court traditionally clears out its docket and issues all the year's opinions by the middle of June. So we're only a couple of months away from an opinion that conceivably could overrule Roe v. Wade or be perceived by the public as significantly curtailing or practically overruling Roe v. Wade if it does so. Given the reaction that we saw to the SB-8 cases, it is a near certainty that we'll see a significant part of the population form a negative opinion of the Supreme Court, believing that it is engaging in politics about Roe v. Wade rather than following stare decisis and continuing to recognize it as a precedent. My point is not whether it's right or wrong for the Supreme Court to do something with Roe. My point is that in a couple of months, if the court does something that is seen as directly contrary to what we've understood Roe to mean for the last 50-odd years, it's going to face a legitimacy challenge by a lot of people that will be upset about that ruling and will genuinely believe that ruling is inconsistent with principles of stare decisis. If you combine that potential backlash, burner number two, with the potential for the first burner to also be on a high temperature, with the January 6th committee being active and private litigants serving subpoenas and cases bubbling up into the federal appellate system as a result of that, you have a situation that is very awkward for the Supreme Court. It has certainly had questions in the past about whether or not a justice should recuse or a justice's particular ethical decisions, and it has certainly had controversial decisions before. Indeed, it has them probably every term. But the two of them happening at the same time Time, both in uniquely high-profile ways. On the first burner, if you will, an ethical issue involving the spouse of a Supreme Court justice, and on the second, involving not just any important precedent, but one that produces such visceral reactions in so many people, Roe versus Wade, the court could confront a legitimacy problem of a size and scope that it has simply not confronted in recent memory. The question then is, What can the court do to minimize the pressure on it? Take the heat off, reduce the pressure, bring the boil down to simply a low simmer. There are various options. One is to hope for the best, do nothing at all. And that may be what happens. The January 6th committee may simply go about its work. It may not produce more appellate litigation. The Dobbs opinion may turn out, for whatever reason, to not be very controversial at the end of the day. And in hindsight, early 2022 will have just been another year with some controversial decisions. If, however, the January 6th committee remains active and the court knows that it's coming out with an opinion that is going to be perceived as overruling a longstanding precedent that people have very strong feelings about, there will be pressure on the court to do something in advance of that decision to try to reduce the heat. One option would be for Justice Thomas to simply say, I will recuse myself under circumstances X, Y, and Z, state a policy about what he intends to do with recusal. That's not unusual. A lot of judges have standing recusal policies, usually involving particular parties. 
that would probably do something to reduce the heat on the first burner, on the issues surrounding his wife's texts and so forth. On the other hand, recall Justice Roberts' concerns about the way the Supreme Court operates. There are only so many justices, and you genuinely don't know what case might actually end up in front of the court. A policy that seems wise today may in six, nine months when the case actually gets to the Supreme Court may not seem like the right thing to do then. The court itself could also make public statements about developing binding ethics rules or binding processes for resolving ethical disputes. It's unlikely they'll get that done soon, but some public commitment to trying to do that might be something that reduces the heat a little bit and at least acknowledges a significant public concern about the perceived lack of guidance for justices making these decisions about whether or not to recuse. Practically, would that really be meaningful? There are not a lot of 9-0 opinions in the Supreme Court. It's hard to see all nine justices finding agreement on a particular way forward to govern themselves in regard to these matters that for so long have been handled on a chambers-by-chambers, justice-by-justice basis. But perhaps they may decide to make a commitment to something and work towards it over time and, in a way, balance the two considerations that way reducing the heat today by moving forward on a process that may or may not bear a lot of fruit at the end of the day, but will at least assuage some of the public concerns that are raising the temperature at an awkward time for the court. Probably the worst case scenario, but a potential outcome if the temperature remains high on both burners under our hypothetical soup, is Congress getting involved. Congress could, like the Supreme Court, simply do something aspirational. It's already done that uh, in the form of letters to the Supreme Court asking that they adopt various codes and make various decisions. There's no charge for writing letters. It has no legal effect. It is something that politically signals that a particular issue is at least under discussion. But what if Congress decides to go beyond making gestures and actually do something? Can Congress create a binding ethical standards and a binding procedure for implementing those standards for the Supreme Court, it's always stayed away from doing that. Recall we have only one federal law in place, and it only goes part of the way towards a complete framework for resolving issues of recusal and disqualification. Given the concerns that Justice Roberts has noted about the unique nature of the Supreme Court, there are potential constitutional questions there about Congress's interaction with the highest level of a coextensive branch of government, the judicial branch. I'm not suggesting that could be a constitutional crisis, but it could certainly be constitutional awkwardness if Congress really starts seriously moving down that road. And finally, there is at least the theoretical potential for Congress to begin impeachment proceedings against Justice Thomas if it believed that he wasn't taking seriously his duties to consider when recusal or disqualification was appropriate. That seems very unlikely given the current makeup of Congress. But if the temperature remains high enough, there may certainly be people that try that, and there can be a little bit of a feedback effect then, where people feel strongly about issues relating to January 6th, they feel strongly about issues relating to Roe, those raise the overall temperature, that introduces impeachment into the mix, and then it has a feedback that continues to raise pressure on the court and continues to create problems for the court's legitimacy. None of those paths are perfect. They all involve the recognition that while the Supreme Court is not a political institution in the sense that its members don't have to run for office, it is very much political in the sense that it interacts with the laws that are created by the political branches of government, and more significantly, that the public has to accept the rulings of the court in order for the court to be an influential voice in American government. 
the current situation may not turn out to amount to very much at the end of the day, but observing the political landscape, we do see some unusual features about the recusal issues surrounding Justice Thomas when potentially combined with public reaction to a court opinion that is critical of Roe versus Wade. That particular interaction carries some real risks for the overall public perception of the Supreme Court in the United States and a significant decline in public support for the court would not be a good thing for any branch of government. Hopefully, some combination of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the people will be able to balance each other out and find our way through this current situation in a way that maintains the court's legitimacy and maintains the integrity of the decisions made by the court. In today's episode, I examined the legal framework governing decisions about recusal by justices of the Supreme Court. Historically, those have been handled largely successfully by justices on a judge-by-judge basis, each justice making their own individual decision. The current political landscape, which combines intense public debate about the role of Clarence Thomas in cases that potentially involve political activity of his wife, combined with the potential for significant public backlash if the Supreme Court comes out with an opinion in the Dobbs case that is highly critical of Roe v. Wade, creates a potentially unprecedented risk for Supreme Court legitimacy and with it public confidence in the rulings that it makes about law. There are several potential ways forward, ways to reduce pressure on the court and ways to manage that pressure in positive and constructive ways. Hopefully, Congress, the court, and the people to whom the both branches of government answer will be able to manage that difficult terrain in the months ahead and bring these situations to a positive resolution. In upcoming episodes, I will continue to monitor the issues discussed in this podcast about the January 6th committee and the work it is doing, as well as what the Supreme Court will be doing at the end of its 2021-2022 term. I also look forward to having additional interviews with voices about the law and the legal system from Texas and around the country. This podcast is available on all the leading directories. If you enjoyed it, I encourage you to leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.